0: When it talked about who is this king or who is Jesus Christ, it talked about he's the wonderful counselor. There's a whole sermon on what the Bible has to say about Jesus Christ and his word being the counsel to our hearts. And then the second one, he's the mighty God. And to be able to explain to you that isn't God's the almighty God and Jesus is less the mighty God. He is mighty and almighty. But to show you how powerful the God that we have... And then to know that He's the everlasting Father. We could talk about the eternality of the Father. But I like to think of this Father who has no end, who loves me just the way that I am. And He is a benevolent Father. And then at the very end, He's the Prince of Peace. And if there was ever a time in a world that is so filled with instability that we need peace, we can only find it in Christ. And this is why we're celebrating the birth. Not just the action of a birth, but the person who is being born and how very special that is. Well, I'm glad for all of you that are back with us again. We're doing a special study through the book of Romans, chapter 8. And we're going to conclude that now because we're going to enter into some special messages around the holidays. But if you have your Bibles, I'd like you to take them out now and turn, if you will, to Romans, chapter 8. And we're going to cover, in the time we have left, verses 31 through the end of the chapter, verse 39. This is a series that's called Living Free. And I don't know about you, but if you've ever experienced any level of bondage and then you were broken from that particular bondage, you know how freeing that can be, especially if you've known how challenging being in bondage could be. I have a humorous story, at least for me on my side, but not so much for the individual. Back in the 70s, I happened to be dean of men at Florida Bible College. And we had all sorts of issues, of course, as you're dealing with college-age young men. The good news is these guys had their heart turned toward the Lord, but they were still in that 18 to 22-year-old level. And my wife tells me that guys generally don't start maturing until they're 61. Um, and you can kind of read between the lines there. But I got this call late in the evening, and they said, uh, Dean, could you please come up to the, uh, to the floor where the guys are on? And uh, we've got a real problem up here. So I came up to the floor, and what I found was one of the men happened to be handcuffed to the handle of his dorm room. And next to him was a security guard that happened to be working security at a hotel in Hollywood Beach area, South Florida. And what he did as a joke was to explain to him how much fun it is to put handcuffs on people. And so he talked his roommate into putting his hand up to the door and handcuffing his hand with the handcuffs to the doorknob. The problem was he didn't check if he had the key to unlock it. And so now there was a student that was locked to the door handle and couldn't get the handcuffs off. Well, being as bright as I thought I was, I said, well, why don't we just call the school security? And they said, we already tried to do that so this wouldn't come to your level. And I said, well, what happened? They said, we work for a different security company. And because of that, we don't have the same key that matches this handcuff. So I said, well, I guess we can just cut his arm off. And that didn't work. So then they said the best thing to do would be to take him to the Hollywood police station. Now, the Hollywood police station was made famous because it was that police that were that were called by, if you remember the guy on television, John Walsh, who has America's Most Wanted. That was the area where the little boy was lost and then found out that he was abducted and killed. So now they said, we can unlock it, but you're going to have to try to get this guy over here. So then, the only way we could do that is by taking the door off the hinges. Well, that wasn't too big of a problem, and I said, I'll just let you deal with it. Well, they ended up taking it off the hinges, so now they're dragging this door with this guy you know, chained to this thing, handcuffed to it, but they couldn't get it into the car. So now they had to put the door on top of the car with the guy hanging on the top, and the other guy's hanging on the door so it wouldn't blow off the top of the car. The end of the story is... That guy was in bondage and he was never so excited when he could live free again when that was cut off. Now some of you might find that very chuckling, but there's another story that isn't quite as chuckling. This lady was in bondage too, and I hope that none of you would ever have to go through a second of what she went through. And I'm not even going to tell you that she probably had it worse than anyone else. This is her story. Her name is Tanya Ryder. She was trapped in a ravine for eight days without food or water after her car catapulted into the ditch and then she learned some life lessons while she couldn't get out of the car for eight days. She says she remembers that she went into the ravine but didn't know how it got there. And she also says she remembered being in holy terror as she was trapped. She said, I have bits and pieces of my mind. I remember my cell phone ringing, but I couldn't get to it. I remember cars going by, But they couldn't hear me yell. I can remember banging on the window so someone would hear me. And there was no one there. Day after day, night after night. Well, she was married. The odd thing was that her husband worked days, she worked nights. And so they often wouldn't see each other for 48 hours. So by the time he realized his wife was missing... He then went to the police and the police thinking she's an adult, there's no crime thing, thing going on here. It took them eight days before they finally could find this particular woman. So now we're talking about physical bondage. But there are some of you that are listening to me today that might be in another kind of bondage. Your bondage could be to a contract that you're in or maybe there's a bondage to a hurt that you have that you haven't been able to break through or a habit that you have that you know that it's dragging you down. Or maybe there's a hang-up that you know that you'd like to get rid of and you feel so much trapped in that. Well, the first three messages of the four-part series on Romans chapter 8 will begin giving you a whole set of keys so that you can literally live free. And so if you look back over your notes that we have in your worship folder, you might find some of the the truths that we've covered already, and let's go over those just briefly so I can bring some of you back up to speed. Maybe some of you feel like, you know, I'm just no good. I look at my life and it was filled with a tremendous amount of sin, and I just feel like there's no hope for me in the future. Well, God says, when you accept Christ as your Savior by faith alone, you are no longer under any condemnation ever, ever again, because we have freedom in Jesus Christ, And that's why those of us who are Christians are doing all that we can to manifest the character of Christ by reaching out to you to let you know that whatever bondage you might be in, whether even you know it or not, that you can have freedom in Christ. There are others of you that are saying, I'll never change. I find myself wanting to change, but I just keep slipping back to the same old things in my life, and I know they're hurting me. The consequences are horrific. Relationships are broken, and I can't seem to move forward. Well, God says that when you trust Christ as Savior, that sin does not have to have dominion over you any longer. It becomes powerless to you. Because in Christ, you have victory. Now there's some of you that are saying, my life is falling completely apart. No matter where I turn, I look at my life, and it's not going to get any better. The wheels are coming off the wagon. They're flying off my wagon. And I'm just feeling like I am so desperate. Will it ever get any better? God says that in Christ, that you have hope. And then finally today, as we bring this series to a close, some of you might be saying, I just have no future. Some of you are worried about, could I ever really be certain of my salvation? Could I really know this side of heaven absolutely beyond a shadow of a doubt that if I was to die today, I will have eternal life in heaven no matter what I do from today until the day that I die. And so you might be feeling like you could be separated from the Lord. But God says that no matter what, once you've accepted Christ as Savior, there is no more separation because in Christ you have assurance and you have security. So what I'd like to do is to go through this passage. Now, some of you might be saying, I've been a Christian a long time and I own these truths, Pastor. I know that I could never lose my salvation. I know I have assurance. I know the verses you're going to cover today. And you know what I'd like to say to you? Congratulations. I celebrate that assurance that you have. That's a good thing to have and that's what God wants you to have. So you're there. But maybe what you can do is to pay attention to this message because I do know that there are people most likely in your life that you can take these truths and come alongside them and you can help them, especially if you're a parent, especially when those kids who at one time had some bit of assurance of their salvation but begin to question a biblical worldview versus a secular worldview, especially as they start launching into into going to school or military or somewhere. So I'd like to come alongside you to give you what we might call... Five unanswerable questions that at the same time could give you unshakable assurance. Now, the reason I say these are unanswerable questions, they really are answerable questions, but they're almost rhetorical because they're so big and so important. If you'll notice the, the section that we're reading in verse 31 begins with this. It says, what then shall we say to these things? In other words, how can we answer these things? What are we going to say to these things? And here's the first one. God is for us. And I really like that phrase because it says, God is for us. It says, if God is for us, who then can be against us? That's a very important truth because some of you might be feeling right now that you're under so much opposition that that opposition is really coming at you like a freight train and is really hitting you on. And I'd like you to know that God says no matter what is facing you, whether it's finances, whether it's fitness, whether it's family issues, whether you've got some enemies or foes out there, whatever opposition it might be, God is for you. You know that phrase, God is for us? That could almost begin any sentence in your life if you believe it and know it in your heart that can give you the encouragement and assurance to move forward. For example, you might say, God is for me. No matter what I'm facing in my life, God is for me. No matter what test might be revealed to me that the doctor has taken to give me the results. No matter what, God is for me. No matter what my children might be going through, God is for me. Even if I have an incorrigible teenager, God is for me. No matter what happens to the stock market, God is for me. No matter what happens to my car or my job, God is for me. And so I would like for you to perhaps in your own heart just remember, God is for me. Would you say that out loud with me just to hear your own voice and the voices of brothers and sisters? God is for me. Say it again. God is for me. Now, I'm grateful that I have a wife that is my personal world's greatest cheerleader. But at the same time, there could be times that I have to remember that when Carol is not there and I'm hearing some information that I feel like is coming against me before Carol and I can talk and maybe refocus again, I need to remember that God is for me. And I hope you'll remember that. So here's the most important thing to remember that that truth can do. It can conquer your fear of opposition. So whatever that's opposing you, I promise you, I cannot remove the opposition. But what I can tell you is in confidence you can know whatever the opposition is, God is for you and you'll get through it. If you'd like to have a most wonderful biblical example, although the Bible is replete with them, just read the book of Hebrews chapter 11. The one I like to choose always is Joshua. So if you want to think about opposition, I want you to think about all the opposition that he had from all the different people in all the different cities that he had to go and conquer that were all facing. But I want you to remember, before he ever conquered his first city, there was a commander of the Lord that was present. And I really believe it was the Lord himself, and I have reasons to believe that. He came up to Joshua. And if you remember, Joshua fell down because the place where he was at was holy. And so he had his commander. And so whatever you're going through, God is for you, and you don't have to worry about that opposition that might hit you. So think Joshua. Here's number two. The second is, and I think this is important, And that is that God will give us. Now, in the passage, if you look at the verse, follow along with me as I read it to you. It says this. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How shall he not with him also freely give us all things? That is huge. If God could give us Himself in the person of His Son on the cross of Calvary, which is the ultimate gift for the most wickedest of people, which should be you and me in our hearts and the whole world, He gave it to us so that we could have eternal life through His grace by faith alone. I mean, if He can give you that... And by the way, let me ask you, how many of you have received that gift from the Lord? Would you put your hand up right now? If He can give you eternal life, can He not give you the proverbial hamburger that you might need? Now let me tell you a little part of a story that a lot of people overlook, Christmas story. Most of you know that when Jesus was born, the shepherds came. A lot of you know about the magi that came. People like to refer them as wise men. Sometimes they'll call three kings. Sometimes they'll call them the three wise men. Well, I would like to set that story straight. First of all, we don't know that there was 3, there could have been 30, could have been 300, could have been a thousand. There's no number. We do know this, it had to be more than 1 because it used the plural men. We know that they weren't kings because they didn't have the title of king and the word in the Greek really meant magi, which would be more astrologer, could be wise men. So we're all right with that. Now here's the point. They did not come at the manger scene when Jesus was a baby. They came almost two years later at that particular time when he was at least a young child. Maybe not two years, but he wasn't a baby. And here's what I thought was so interesting and maybe why they got the thinking that there were three of them. If you recall, those wise men brought gold, myrrh, and frankincense. One, two, three. So they thought, well, three gifts, three guys. Could have been one guy could have brought all three. Could have been all these guys, each one get a separate gift. But that's not even where I'm going. I want you to know how much God will take care of his people even himself. If you recall in the passage, when these wise men came and they gave the gold, the myrrh, and the frankincense, all of a tremendous value, they did it as a way to give gifts and honor to Jesus. Then it says, when they left, that's when the other angel came and said to Mother Mary and Joseph, you need to go down to Egypt for safety. And so I'm just thinking that, is it possible that the Lord knew Joseph and Mary were basically poor people, did not have much. They had to travel a distance to Egypt and it would require resources to do that. So in the process of this whole mechanism and dynamic of the Lord being honored, there was brought to them the gold, the myrrh, and the frankincense all to be used as the resources necessary to take mother and father and child down into Egypt for a time for protection. Now I'm telling you this story for this reason. But I want you to know that not only is God for you, but God will give to you everything that you need. First of all, what you need to do to get to heaven is going to be his grace and his mercy and forgiveness found in Jesus Christ. Which is now telling you no amount of good deeds or religious deeds or social deeds will ever get you into heaven. Because God says you don't need that. In fact, in Acts it says your money will perish with you if you think that will give you the gift from God. So none of those things will get you. So in order to have eternal life, he says, I have to give you these things in the person of Christ. So your greatest need is what's going to get you into eternity with God with the forgiveness of sin. That's his son. But then it says, and with him, how shall he not freely give you all things? Now, some of you might be saying, does that mean now that I'm going to get, name it and claim it, health and wealth and all that? And that's a a reasonable conclusion you might want to come from that. The problem is it doesn't, fit the mechanism of Scripture, the grid of Scripture. Actually, what God does give to you and me is all things necessary that pertain to us living a godly, righteous life. He gives us His Holy Spirit to seal us so we cannot lose our salvation, so we have assurance. He gives us His Spirit to teach us so that we could know truth, including illuminate Scripture so we can understand it. He gives His Spirit to prompt us to do what is right, to convict us to do what is wrong. He gives His Spirit to give us great power, and with His Spirit come spiritual gifts so that now we're enabled to serve Him until He comes. Now, all of that is part that comes with the Lord. So whatever you have a need of, a basic need of life, he will provide that for you. And that's a, certain, a separate message altogether. So in your mind, you might say, okay, he is for me. I'm going to think Joshua. He gives to me. Therefore, I'm going to think Mary and Joseph. So what would the fear that you could conquer? The fear of Provision. So if any of you today are very concerned about where you're going to go financially, I can't promise you that you'll be able to make all your house payments. I can't promise you that you'll be able to take your business to another level. I can't promise you that you'll have enough money to send your kids to college. But I can promise you this. Are you ready? Everything that you need to bring all glory to the Lord and receive whatever blessings and rewards He has for you in heaven, God says, How shall he not freely with him give you all things necessary for you to do what you need to do? So what we need to do is to change our desires, our goals perhaps, and now let them be, God, what do you want me to do with my life? And whatever it is, you will resource me, and whatever that is, I'll move forward with it. Because I know that everything I need, no matter what it is to whatever I have to do, live for you, live victoriously for you, even if I'm crippled from the neck down, whatever it might be, you will give that to me in Christ Jesus. So I have the assurance of that. Now some of you, if you'd like to follow that a little bit further, let me urge you, encourage you, read some good Christian biographies of missionaries. And you will see that God was for them when they were having opposition and that God took care of their needs. That not one missionary that I know, of, that I've read about, that I've heard about, that I know about, none of them starved to death. So God will take care of you. So not only is he for us, but he's a little bit more than that. God will also forgive us. And I really like that, that God will forgive us. Let's look at that passage, will you? Follow along. It says, who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Well, the big question is, is who is God's elect? Will it be all of you who have trusted Christ to save you? You're in part of his forever family. And so because of that, he says that there's no charge that's going to come against you. And I, I love that verse, that I know that God is going to be with me. And that God is at the same time going to forgive me? Many years ago, I was in a church with a pastor who was really big on trying to raise money. And he, he kept hammering away at the people. And I, I was kind of low man on the totem pole. And he kept saying it this way. You're never more like God than when you're giving. And he loved to say that. He'd all talk about how much God would give. God would give. And you would never more like God than when you're giving. I don't know that I would ever buy that fully theologically. I think we're more like God when we are generous. I think that's important, but I don't know we're never more like God. I think we're we're more godly. But I'd rather look at it this way. I'm probably most like God, not so much when I give, as much as when I look at people that are in a broken state in their life and I'm willing to pour upon them true forgiveness. I want you to think about the people who've come against you, the people who have really hurt you. I think perhaps maybe you're never more like God than when when you have all that opposition and in turn what you do is you release them and you let them back to God and so you're never more like God than yeah when you're giving but also when you're forgiving. I like that phrase justified. You know what that means? That means you're declared righteous. That means as if you came into the courtroom and you did something wrong but someone else took it for you and what the judge did is he took his gavel and he hit it on the desk and he said... Not guilty. I can only imagine what it would be. I wonder how many of you might be listening to me today that might have been in a situation where that you knew that you did some things wrong, but somehow you were given that little bit of grace and they said to you, you know what, we're not holding that against you, not guilty. Even that does not compare to the fact that God says to you, you're not guilty. There's a good possibility that some of you are here today And you are looking forward to hear that loud sound from God when his gavel hits the desk and says to you, I know you sinned. I have paid your sin debt. I look at you now. I totally forgive you of that Past, past, present, and future. The big sins, the little sins. You're forgiven of it all. And therefore, he says to you, not guilty. Now, if you want to think about who that might be, you could look at a couple of people. One would be, as Jesus was up on the cross, he looked at all those people that were brutalizing him, and even betting for his clothes that he had. And he looks down upon them, and what does he say to the Father? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Now, I don't believe that that was a full judicious forgiveness, where that means that all those people, they had their sins forgiven, and they went to heaven. I do believe that it was at a time that the Lord was expressing that forgiving nature that he had to these people. But here's what he did do, though. There were two thieves on the cross... They were there because they were malefactors. They had done things that were wrong. They did deserve to be up there. They were convicted of their sin. And one of them looked to Jesus and had the right spirit and basically simply said, You're the Son of God. You're the one who is dying in pain for sin. You're the one who doesn't deserve to be up here. Essentially, you're perfect. We're not. And Jesus then then looks at him and in that same spirit of Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. He then says to this person, today you will be with me in paradise. And so as I look at that, I want you and I to really for a moment enjoy that moment where God says to us, I forgive you of everything you've done wrong and you now are part of my forever family. So as I look at that, I say, "What is what fear has overcome in my life? The fear of accusation. The fear of the fact that I might have done something wrong, but now God says, I've forgiven you. Let's look at the fourth one here. The Bible says, God will not condemn us. God will not condemn us. I don't have to unpack this too much because we spent a lot of time with this in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, when I began at the beginning of it, of of chapter 8. But it says here, who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen. I love that, the death and the resurrection. That is the gospel. Who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Oh, that is so special. If you remember how the chapter begins, it says, who is he that condemns you? Jesus Christ who died, more than we, more than that was raised to life. He is at the right hand of God. He also intercedes for us. I love that. He condemns sin in sinful man. He didn't condemn sinful man. He condemns sin in sinful man. No condemnation. Do you feel a little condemned? Have you been in an environment where you felt someone was condemning you for something you said or didn't say, condemning you for an attitude that you had or didn't have, condemning you for an action that you did or didn't do, and you felt really condemned, really marginalized. Now, some of you might feel that in the world of work. You might have had a very horrific boss, male or female, and was really condemned for the things that you did, and great judgment was placed upon you, tremendous control was put over you, and you were marginalized in a horrific way. Some of you might have experienced the condemnation away from work but you grew up in a home where that most of the conversation coming out of the mouths of your parents were where they put you down. When they looked at all the A's that you did and they saw the B and they condemned you for the B that you made because you didn't do something the way they wanted you to do and you feel in your heart this condemnation. Some of you have had it so much ingrained in us that we might look at God now and think that God is nothing more than a condemner. Just remember John chapter 3 that says Jesus came into the world not to condemn the world, but that through him the whole world might be saved. We are already condemned because we haven't trusted Christ, but he says I want to release you from that condemnation so there is now no more condemnation if you'll trust Jesus Christ, me, he says, himself, as your Savior. You're taken out of that condemnation. I think that's so important because some of you that live under condemnation, I want you to remember that Jesus Christ, he loves you. He cares for you. He says you'll never lose your salvation. You can have the assurance of my love. You can be set free, never to be back into that kind of bondage again. But you have to believe this is truth for you and me.